We have all heard of the legacy of Eve. She is the one on whom we put all the blame for all our problems. The weakling who could not withstand the serpent's lies and temptations. Adam, no doubt, if faced with that, would have withstood them. All women are foolish, mindless, easily deceived. They are the ones cursed to suffer pain and domination. Eve was created last and therefore was least. Despite the fact that she was a help need, a term used only elsewhere in the Old Testament to apply to God, not to men. She should not accept epidurals when having a baby. A friend of mine, about 18 months ago, was about to have her first son. And some women gathered around her bed and told her that she was wrong to accept epidurals because of the curse of Eve. She shall bear children in pain. And of course, she is the temptress, the seducer, the manipulator. And that means all of her daughters are as well. Eve lives on in all of us. And I would like to suggest that we share her shame. I would like to suggest, too, that we have not really read the text. God cursed neither Adam nor Eve. The only two things he cursed were the ground and the serpent. All of the other things that he predicts come out of the story, and we'll look at that in a few moments. But I would like to suggest that since we're reading the first part of Genesis 3 and uh, God's proclamation to Adam and Eve, we really should read the second part. Um, Not just what he said to the woman, but what he says to the man as well. And I would like to recommend that men, especially male farmers, should be deprived of tractors. Because by the sweat of their brow they shall eat bread. And at least, at least they should not have air-conditioned tractors. Complete with televisions and cell phones. If we keep on this line, it would seem then that it is good that men should return to dust. And I would think we would be horrified to suggest that we should welcome and celebrate all funerals. Death comes to all of humanity and so does domination, just as the man was going to dominate the woman. So the ground would dominate Adam and finally receive him back again. I call it the reverse order of creation. Sin turned upside down 
the kind of creation God originally meant. I would like to revisit the legacy of Eve, this legacy of Eve, and to retell it. About a woman whose trust had never been violated or broken. Vulnerable, inquisitive, and free. Perfectly loved by her Heavenly Father. After all, it is a law that we love because he first loved us. He ventured on ground he warned her against and engaged in conversation with the prime abuser of all creation, the fallen angel in taste and serpent, as it were. And if we had the time, I would peruse this more in depth and we would look at the conversation that Satan had with, with Eve, or the serpent had with Eve, and Note several factors, but basically what he does is move her from the warning that God gave her as a loving parent to the notion of a command, and she picked up on it and went even further, and trying to make it better, she made it worse, and posed it as a threat. In the process, he convinced her that God was an abusive parent. And that the only way out was to believe that she had equal power to him if she ate the fruit. That something external could control her and could make her more powerful so that she could be equal to God. And therefore he couldn't abuse her because she'd have power according to him. She bought into that. And as a result, her entire world changed. Her entire perceptions changed of reality, of her picture of God, and how she could relate to other human beings. And we see that in the following lines. She manipulates her spouse. She carries on the victimization to him. And then both of them, when they hear the sound of God coming in the woods, become frightened. Now, the Bible says that's because they perceived they were naked. That's only a perception. They were already naked before they perceived that. It was the way they perceived it. It has to do with the seeing. And I appreciate Karen's remarks on Thursday about the verb to see that is carried throughout many of the stories of Genesis uh, as a primary verb. It seems to be the theme. Their eyes are opened because now they see God in a different light than they ever have before, and they are afraid. Like any abused children, they run from him in terror. And that leads to further victimization. Adam blames Eve. You can see why God would say, your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. He already was. That wasn't anything new. That game started right there in the conversation God has with them. And so, because she became vulnerable to the serpent, to his deception and his abuse of her mind, she then becomes further victimized and vulnerable to further abuses. She will be dominated. She will bear children in pain, and that's more than just childbirth. You have the Cain and Abel story, 
the outworking of this cycle of abuse as one brother kills another. And Genesis records that that cycle of abuse continued generation to generation to generation until the earth became filled with violence and every imagination of the thoughts of men's hearts became only evil continually. If we had time, I would talk more about that. I would like to suggest, though, that the story doesn't end there. That the real legacy of Eve is not encased in the mind and heart of God in her fall. That the real legacy of Eve is found in chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the servant, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, that is her offspring, and you will strike his heel. It was to womankind that God gave the one who would come to break the cycle of abuse for eternity. That is really Eve's legacy. That God took the first to fall and entrusted her with the greatest treasure the world has ever received. That God is not the dominator of women, but their restorer. I did a count of all the women in the Old Testament not too long ago. The ones that are named and the ones that are unnamed, but those who play any specific role in the Old Testament. And I categorized them according to three categories. The first category were the recipients of salvation. The, the main thrust of their story was that they received salvation. The second category were those who were instruments of salvation. Now when I use the word salvation, I'm not talking in a narrow scope. I'm talking in terms of any time they rescue anyone from any kind of danger. And then my third category were participants of evil. Of the many women that are found in the Old Testament, roughly two-thirds are ones who are actually saviors in some way. Now that's impressive. That means that the primary role of women in the Old Testament is that of bringing salvation. That woman, the overall image of women in the Old Testament is intended to be one who is a savior. Think of God taking one on whom we blame all our troubles and saying, I'm going to turn you into someone who will help to rescue human beings. I could spend a lot of time this morning on Old Testament women. I could talk about Hannah, who only had worse, providing she bore an adequate number of children, but whom was barren, who was abused by the other woman who was solely the other woman because she could bear children, and whose husband 
could not understand in a rather unfeeling way why she didn't think he was worth more than ten children. She was prejudged by a prophet judge as an alcoholic, and it's through God lifting her up and interrupting the cycle that he breaks the bonds of her abuse. And if you want to read about that, you can read Hannah's prayer in First Samuel. I could talk about Manoah's wife, that unnamed woman who has no status. She's a mouse, follows her husband around and dutifully runs to get him when the angel comes to visit her instead of him. How outlandish. And in the end becomes the leader. He goes after her to see the angel when he comes the second time. She changes from a subservient, dutiful wife to a leader, a theologian. She knows God better than her husband. She's not as afraid, I think. And I could talk about what I'm afraid I'm becoming known for, the Levite and the concubine. <laughs> as the ultimate symbol of sacrifice, at the images of a cross, I would like to spend more time this morning on probably the favorite women, all of us. I know I do have some risks that I'm running when I do that, because we have spent so much time on Mary Magdalene. I'm going to do something a little daring and a little imaginative this morning. Uh, there are times when I wear a different hat than Old Testament scholar. I'm going to do a complex of stories and, and put them together in Mary. They don't necessarily belong to her. Mary has this sense of um, appearing and, and vanishing at certain points in the Gospels. I don't know if you've sensed that in, in reading the stories about her. But um, she seems not always to be named. And so I'm going to take the risk that she's involved in more than maybe she was for the sake of maybe trying to map out her life. And the other thing I'm going to do is give a lot of imaginative detail that I can't prove, but which answers a lot of questions that might otherwise be raised. One of the questions that I find in talking about this is that Mary and Martha and Lazarus live in a house together. Um, from what I've studied about Jerusalem and the time of Jesus, it seems very strange. Why are these people, are they grown adults? Are they young people? Who are they? What is their age? And why are they living in a house together alone? Often in the time of Jesus in Jerusalem, a young woman, we would say girl, <laughs> was betrothed as early as the age of 12. And she simply changed hands from one master, which was her father, to another master, whom she called my lord, which was her husband. It seems strange that Mary and Martha, neither one are married. And what about Lazarus? Where does he fit in? My suspicion is that he's younger than these two women. And so, in imagination, I would like to suggest 
based on things I've read in Ellen White and based on piecing together these stories in the Gospel, um, based on a little bit of research, I'm not a New Testament scholar, that something terrible happens in the lives of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at a very young age. Something happened to their parents. They once had a happy, loving home. And something took away their parents, probably illness, and left them orphans. And it was Uncle Simon who took them in. Uncle Simon lived in Jerusalem, which is only about two miles or so from Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. He took them in, and um, became their guardian. Now, Simon was a Pharisee, and Pharisees were known for their ardent support of law. They were the middle-of-the-road conservatives in the church. They also tended to be abusive. Remember the things that Jesus said about the Pharisees? How they laid heavy burdens hard to bear on the people's backs but wouldn't lift a finger to help carry them themselves? That's abuse. And we know that studies show that some of the highest incidences of abuse lurk in conservative Christian families. So he took these children in, probably out of duty more than love. And that's when the nightmares of hell began for Mary and possibly even Martha. Night after night, Mary had to put up with this visitor to her bedroom. And like all molesters of children, he blamed her as the guilty one. She was too beautiful too seductive, too attractive. Mary probably had an extremely affectionate heart. She was a dreamer, one who liked to sit and think. And unfortunately, I share a lot in common with Mary. Uh, she was naturally affectionate, very open, very trusting. And bit by bit, Uncle Simon destroyed her trust, her dignity, her personhood and robbed her of the very last thing she had. She had already lost her parents, but now she was bereft of her own personhood. And there was another Mary about which LaVon Neff wrote in a book called A Heart of Flesh. I don't think too many people have ever read that book because the, the cover of the book was so awful, I don't think hardly anybody ever bought it. I wish it could be republished. It's the story of a Jewish girl who grew up in New York with an abusive father and brothers. She finally got married just to escape her home. Married a very loving man, but she couldn't handle his love. And so she threw him out of her life, went to New York City, and found that she could make money by using her body. And for many years, she engaged in a life of prostitution. High-class prostitution that brought her lots of money. Events finally found her in Arizona, downhearted, needing desperately some love and affection, and she found some Adventists. And she found if she obeyed their rules and believed their ways, they would accept her into their family. 
And so she tried very hard to live up to everything she learned. But it wasn't enough to fill the void in her life. And she drifted out of the church through several different marriages and finally ended up in the hospital ranting and raving with a high fever. None of the nurses wanted to treat her. They didn't want to come near her because of the things she said. And finally, one morning she opened her eyes to a man standing by her bedside. He looked at her and he said, Rebecca, Mary. And she knew that this man was Jesus. He said, last night I cast out seven demons from your life. They didn't want to go, but I told them you were mine, and they had to leave. Rebecca became a new person with a new mission, a new goal, a new purpose in life. But she tells in the story that Lavon Nath records how those demons entered her mind. The first one convinced her that she was a thing. As a result of the abuse that she had suffered as a child, demon possession entered her life by the devaluing her of her personhood, by the destroying of who she was, by trashing her and making her feel totally worthless. That's Mary. Mary came to so devalue herself she knew, and probably Uncle Simon let her know. You know, you're no good for any man now. No man will want you. You're not a virgin. And to maybe escape his domination, she decided to do the only thing she knew she was good at. And she went north to Magdala, which is where she got her name. Magdala was a town of trade, international trade, and there she could find lots of customers. And for years, she brought in the money, served the men with her body, and occasionally visited Martha and Lazarus back in Bethany. It was on one of those visits, perhaps, that Uncle Simon came to visit her. I have a customer for you, he smirked. He'll bring you lots of money. Not sensing anything unusual, she went. She said something different about the customer. It was, it was kind of funny. He didn't seem to be really that interested in what she had to offer him. But somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, there was a heavy knock at the door. Some men rushed in and surrounded them, grabbed her up. She was forced to quickly grab something, put it on, and they took her out as dawn was breaking toward the temple. And she suddenly realized that she had been set up. They reached the temple. Jesus had been on the Mount of Olives and had come down and was sitting on the temple steps teaching the people. And they brought her through the gate. And where Jesus was sitting was probably not far from the court of the women. And they brought her up to him. And of course... Mary may have heard something about him, but she had never met him before. And again, I'm completing the stories. I don't know if they fit together, but for the sake of, of giving a life, I'm doing this. They brought her to Jesus, and all she saw was this humble-looking man, 
And of course, the rules were that she was not to look at a man, and a man was not to look at her. She waits there as this man doesn't stand up, and that's kind of strange. He still sits there. And the men press around her and say, we caught this woman in the very act of committing adultery. Now Moses says that such a one should be stoned. What do you say? Now she assumes when they lead her toward the temple that they're leading her to the Sanhedrin. They're going to have a meeting. And the common thing for a prostitute caught in the act of adultery was that she might be stoned or burnt. So she knows that this is the ultimate act of Uncle Simon of cruelty. First of all, he destroys her personhood. He teaches her the very trade she engages in. He then sets her up with a client and then uses it for his own cruel ends. Thus reducing him to less than zero. She stands there with bowed head and, and maybe she doesn't even have a veil on her face and so she just kind of stares at the ground as this man doesn't say a word in response to their questions. He simply bends down off those steps and begins to write in the dust. Now she doesn't know what he's writing because she never learned to read. Uncle Simon believed in the rabbinical saying that it was better to teach a daughter lechery than to teach her letters. And so he had never permitted her to learn to read. So she stands there and awaits her doom. By this time she has been so destroyed that she probably is numb. She doesn't really feel anymore. She's almost beyond that. If there's any feeling, it's, it's outrage. It's anger. The men keep yelling at Jesus, trying to get him to respond to their question, and Jesus just keeps writing. And so finally the oldest one, who seems to have the greatest pomposity, pushes his way around and looks over Jesus' shoulder to find out what he's writing. And there's this red that comes from the neck and moves slowly upward toward the top of his head. There's a kind of a silence that falls over the group. And Jesus looks up and says, Well, the one who's never sinned can cast the first stone and resumes writing. And suddenly the man with the very red face disappears to the crowd. And one by one she watches as these men around her disappear. And she is finally left alone with Jesus. Now, I used to think that this was a real scene of judgment, and Jesus is standing there like a true judge um, with the crowd standing around, and, and Mary is thrown at his feet. That's the picture we usually have, is it not? The Gospel of John actually portrays something different. And that is that Jesus, while he bent over, was still sitting on the steps, and Mary is the one standing before him. And that picture has to be very clear. That this is not a, a situation where Mary before Jesus is just simply down and Jesus is up bending over her in, in some kind of masculine condescension. 
but rather Jesus addresses her looking up at her and into her face. And then he, the God of the universe, asks her a question. And it's a kind of teasing one, I think. He says, woman. Now, the men who brought her to Jesus referred to her as this woman. That's always a, a very derogatory way of saying woman in the Bible. This woman. In fact, that's what uh, Manoah says about his wife after the angel sees her. This woman, he doesn't want to even claim her. She's not my wife anymore. You know, I don't know why you came to visit her instead of me. Um, it, it's that kind of a, a derogatory address. Uh, the men address her as this woman and such a woman as this. Jesus simply says, woman. And that's the same respectful greeting he gives his mother. Woman, where are your accusers? I, I know that the compassion in his voice overshadowed anything. But there must have been just a hint of teasing. Not teasing her, but amusing. Where are your accusers? Isn't there anyone to accuse you? And she says, no one, sir. And at that moment, she looks into his eyes. Daring thing for a woman, unless she really was acting as a woman in the town, and at this point she was not. It was his eyes that drew her. She had seen others' eyes. They had broken down her defenses and destroyed her trust. Jesus' eyes drew out her self-control and showed trustworthiness. Other men's eyes had ravished her and destroyed her inner purity. Jesus' eyes appealed to her highest moral values and worth. Other men's eyes had demeaned her, degraded her, and treated her like a plaything. Jesus' eyes restored her honor, integrity, and dignity. Other men's eyes had manipulated her, forced her, demanded and controlled her, and ultimately vilified her. Jesus' eyes loved her unconditionally, drew her unseductively, and set her free to be her truest self as a person. Other men's eyes had ripped her apart, bruised her, and destroyed her soul. Jesus' eyes began to make her whole. That was only the beginning. My understanding is that Jesus spent nights of prayer in tears for Mary to free her from the demons. And I've wondered why. I mean, he who was always casting out demons and making disease go with a word, and it seemed to happen instantly, why would it take so long to free Mary from her demons? And the only answer to that is that those demons were embedded in her diminishing and destruction of her self-image, her self-worth. And that in order to convince her that she was a person of worth and she was a person who had some kind of value, he had to go through those nights of agonizing prayer to demonstrate to her, to convince her that she could believe that she was valuable to God and to Jesus. I don't think Mary knew instantly that Jesus was God. It was his prayers that began to heal her broken heart, 
His tears began to undo the lie that she had believed about herself. There is no other woman in the whole Bible, except maybe the concubine, who so shares the, the bad legacy, the evil legacy of Eve, of the abuse, the victimization. She is still known, even after Jesus sets her free, is to be the woman of the town. And you remember that one of the last acts Jesus does in his ministry is to go to the feast of Uncle Simon. I've often wondered how Mary related to Uncle Simon after Jesus began to set her free. How could she stand to be in the same room with him at this dinner party? And yet she slips in quietly, trying to be unnoticed. She has heard that Jesus has predicted his death. She actually believes that. She's the only one who does. And she begins to pour this very expensive perfume on Jesus' feet because she can't bear to wait until he's dead to anoint his body. And of course the smell, the aroma, reaches Uncle Simon. And he begins to say, if he knew what kind of a woman she was, he would not let her touch him. Well, neither would we. Neither would we recommend that to our pastors. The, the irony of this story is that it is Uncle Simon who has made her who she is. Or who he thinks she is. But as always, it is the woman who is to blame in these situations. And what Jesus says in those moments following Simon's accusation is the restoration, the fuller restoration of Mary. Leave her alone. One of the few times Jesus ordered anybody, leave her alone. And you can imagine what must have gone through Mary's mind. How many times did she want to say that to Uncle Simon in those nights long ago when she was a child? Leave me alone. Get out of here. Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. The undoing of Uncle Simon's remarks about her beauty being too seductive for him to control himself. She has done a beautiful thing. I tell you that wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. One of the most powerful freeing words that Jesus ever spoke. There's only one other instance when he said a memorial like that. We celebrated it, something of it last night. Do this in remembrance of me. But now he takes this woman who had been trashed by the world, by the people who represented God, by the people who were her guardians and were supposed to protect her, by the people who blamed her for the things they did to her, he takes this woman who has been crumpled up like a piece of paper and thrown into the trash and lifts her up, 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 on a level with himself. This will be told throughout the whole world in remembrance of her.
I love to point out to my students and women of the Bible that it is those weak women who can't kill insects who made it to the cross and stayed there until Jesus died. Mary was one of them. And interestingly enough, the disciple who made it to the cross and, and watched Jesus die was the most sensitive and caring of the lot. One might ask the question when we look at the final weeks of Jesus' life, particularly the final events, who was Jesus' closest disciple? When he meets her again, it is at the garden tomb. And this is where the story gets really amazing because each gospel writer sees it just a little different. And it's almost like a, a patchwork and you almost have to take the puzzle apart and put it back together again and reorder the events um, because there's some tension about who did what when. But it appears that Mary was the first to get there, shortly followed by the other women. The other women stay at the tomb long enough to find out that Jesus is risen. They're told to go tell the other disciples, which seems, must have seemed preposterous to them. In the first place, it says in Mark that they were terrified at this news. They probably thought they were seeing things. They had probably believed that women, you know, have this <coughs> overactive imagination and, and really lack the credibility to be able to know whether they've seen anything or not and, and whether anything is true or not. And they probably had a lot of self-doubt. And Mark actually goes on to say that they, they wouldn't go and tell the disciples. Now, he's the only gospel writer who says that. So what I think happened is that they left and went home in fear and trembling. They weren't going to tell the, the news to the disciples. And Mary is staying by the tomb. Of course, she immediately goes and tells Peter and John who get into a frenzy. The tomb is empty. That part they kind of believe. And then she stays there in the garden. And I, I love what Marat said last night about her sticking by and not leaving. Who was Jesus' closest disciple? And then her meeting with Jesus, whom she thinks is the gardener, And Jesus only has to say her name to gain recognition. When he later meets the disciples, he uses disguises, he uses all kinds of uh, supernatural things to get across to them. But to Mary, all he has to do is say, Mary. And she recognizes him. The disciples need fish and flesh and all kinds of things to recognize him. <laughs> Mary only needs to hear her name. I believe she held him as though she was never going to let him go. You're not going to get away from me again. I'm never going to find that tomb empty. In fact, the tomb can stay empty, but you're never going to leave me. I'm not going to let you die again. And then Jesus does one last act for Mary that not only sets her free completely, but should set us free as well. He breaks the final abuser of death and gives her the good news of the resurrection. You remember when we started in Genesis 3 
that we noted that the ultimate abuser was the ground, the one that was cursed. And that all of us succumb to that. All of us are dominated by death and ultimately return to dust. And Jesus has broken that final abuser and then gives Mary, the one who was the most abused of any person he probably ministered to, the privilege of announcing the conquest of that abuser. He sends her to the apostles. What does that imply? Mary later became known, apparently, in some Christian circles as an apostle to the apostles. The one sent. And you think of the preposterous thing that Jesus does here, considering the society. These apostles have been given the keys to the kingdom, as it were. They're, they're the leaders of the church. They're the kind of the um, general conference committee, budding general conference committee. Right now, yes, they're hiding in terror behind closed doors, but um, you would think that Jesus would have just gone in through those doors a little sooner, confronted them, hey guys, wake up. <laughs> How could you do this? He doesn't. He sends the one who waits at the tomb, the one who is his closest disciple, the one who only needs to have her name said to recognize him. And he commissions her, go, tell the disciples, or actually he doesn't even call the disciples, he says, tell my brothers, I go to your father, to my father. And you think of the implications of those words. Mary now knew her heavenly father as the opposite of Uncle Simon. She knew that even though he said, tell my brothers, he didn't have to even tell her. She already knew. She believed that he would die. If she believed he would die, she must have believed something of his words about how he would rise again. She was probably the only disciple Jesus had who really grasped what he said, what he predicted. And the interesting thing is, That apparently, Mary goes to do as Jesus told her. You wonder what went through her mind. Here she was, once totally no credibility. The only power she ever had was with her body. And now she's told to go to the apostles and tell them this good news. She apparently wanted some help and reinforcement. I'm, I'm piecing this together from the different uh, accounts of this. She apparently went to the other women who didn't go and tell, rounded them up and said, would you please join me? Maybe, maybe they'll believe us. And so they go to the apostles and she tells them. And Luke 24 says... But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I could talk a long time about different things that have happened in my life where I didn't have credibility because I was a woman. It seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But later on, Jesus is walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, 
And they say, Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They told us they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And we went there, and we didn't see him, and we didn't hear anything. And Jesus says, Oh, you fools. You know, blind prejudice, whether it's racial, gender, ethnic, religious, or whatever, which is all part of this trajectory of abuse that we are all on, blind prejudice does not improve the intellect. It tends to make us not believe the evidence. It tends to make us look kind of silly when we're found out to be wrong. I believe that in these stories of Jesus' ministry to Mary, that he took her from where Uncle Simon had put her, had trashed her, and lifted her slowly up to the level of an apostle to the apostles. She was the one who got to go to the General Conference brethren and tell them that the last abuser had been vanquished. Today, here in this place, we stand in the garden tomb with Jesus. And today, here in this place, Jesus calls us, no matter who we are, no matter where we've been, regardless of our past reputations, to be his sent out ones. As we have looked into the eyes of infinite elevating love and have been restored by that look, as we have come to know God, not as an abusive parent or an abusive spouse or an abusive boss, but as the God Jesus revealed. And as that acquaintance with him has broken the cycle of abuse in our lives and has freed us from our victimizations, and as we have come to see ourselves as God sees us, then we don't need to wait for the brethren to stop hiding behind their doors of prejudice and commission us. God has already done that. So go. Go to the brethren huddled in their self-centered fears behind the barred doors of their upper rooms of prejudice. Go to the people in Jerusalem. Go to those in Samaria. Go proclaim and show the truth about God, that he is not an abuser. Go fulfill the legacy of Eve. Go tell it to the world.